Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 91 of the Brown County Hour. This is Vera Grubbs. And Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. This month, we're presenting a special fun drive edition of our show. Our musical guest is John Whitcomb. We'll feature his interview and we'll listen to some of his original music recorded in our studio. We have an interview with travel author Teresa Goodrich, and Jim Eagleman shares some timely observations about fall. Frank Jones presents his version of Taley Poe. We have another edition of On the Road with Carrie Ray. Laura Edmonds shares some information about the Raptor Center. And Dave Seastrom ruminates on fun drives and the importance of supporting WFHB. Segment one begins with our John Wickham interview. We'll listen to our interview with travel author Teresa Goodrich, and we'll close with John's original tune, Old Swimming Hole. my privilege to once again introduce John Whitcomb, who has graced us with an excellent musical performance here in our studio, and he's here to talk about uh, one of the projects that he's been working on, amongst other things. Hi, John. Good Hi. to see you again. Good to see you guys. Thanks for having, having me back again. It's oh. always a pleasure. We had a great time listening to your wonderful music. Well, thank you. Well, I can't take all the credit because the great lyrics were by James Whitcomb Riley. Yeah, so tell us about all that. Well, I made this connection uh, between James Whitcomb Riley, learned that he was named after the eighth governor of Indiana, who his father was really good friends with, a fellow named James Whitcomb, who was uh, governor during the Spanish-American War, and there's actually a statue of him down on Monument Circle in Indianapolis. Yep. And everybody in Indiana knew who James Whitcomb Riley was at that time, you know, back in the day. Even now, I would suspect. Even now, not not as much, but we're, we're going to see if we can change that. <laughs> anyway, then the connection goes on to my father being the 43rd governor of Indiana, which is kind of cool, and then add another little cool thing in, and that my wife is actually related to James Whitcomb Riley by marriage. Well, well so, yeah. Yeah, so a we got this. A lot of nepotism going on. <clears throat> yep, yep. And so I thought, this is really cool. I thought, I'm going to do something with this. So... I, I did an exhaustive search of James Wickham Riley poetry set to music and found little, if any, 
Not very much at all, to my surprise. I mean, I dug and Fertile I looked. Ground. Yeah. And, uh, and, but also learned that there is a song or lyrics by James Whitcomb Riley, Mama's Little Baby Loves Shortening. Oh, yeah. oh, well, really? he wrote the music for that. So, you know, so he was, he was a budding songwriter as well. I was amazed how easy it was to put these things to music. His cadences were very, what you would call, pop music friendly. They all laid out. Now, some of them are incredibly long, like the Raggedy Man. It was eight stanzas long. And so I thought, oh, I got to I gotta pare this down a little bit because the pop radio mind is about three minutes long. <laughs> yeah, the attention so, span. Yeah, yeah, so three minutes and five seconds, and there it was. So, But I really had to, other than just cutting some whole verses out on that song, the other songs I did, I'm doing six right now. All I've had to do is change, change very little. There are some words, of course, being of Irish descent, that they would use when they communicated just because of their dialect. And they're kind of, if you don't know what he's saying, um, uh, for instance, in uh, Frost is on the Pumpkin, Fodder's in the Shock, the stubble and the furries kind of lonesome-like but still. Well, if you're not from an agrarian family, you, you don't know that that means the stubble and the furrows. Uh kind of lonesome like but still yeah, so referring kind of conjured a different right, right right so it's a little bit different that way and uh, some words he uses to describe the sound of a turkey a kyuk. of course we didn't kyuk, kyuk, kyuk. if you're from around here know right. what turkey sound like but i cha- i changed it to the stately gobble so because it is it's, that bird's kind of majestic you know well, well you know benjamin franklin thought it should be our national bird it's nice yeah it's a beautiful bird it yeah, is it should be. Yeah. And intelligent and smart and Tastes good. Love too. seeing them running around here. Yeah. But then I thought, with the connection of my father, I wrote several tunes, began, and have started writing tunes about when uh, our family was, I guess you could call us the first family of Indiana when he was governor, and experiences that he had, and experiences that we had as a family, and also the connection that my dad's boyhood was very similar to a James Whitcomb Riley poem. The old swimming hole. Well, he had an old swimming hole he went to. It was called Six Mile Creek. So all these, you know, they're all just all these little things that line up. So I thought it, it was, a, and it's, so it's turned out to be a great project, and it's been a lot of fun. And I want to mention my band that's been working really hard. I have a full band that's helping me play this music. Uh, Kevin Burkett on drums. Chris Spencer on, uh, has been playing piano, doing a great job. And uh, Wes Clark has been playing bass from us. He's gone back up to, to college right now, so we're looking for a bassist. So What's the name of this band? Well, we're we're just calling it the poets, the poets and politicians band okay. for right now. So yeah, that works. Yeah. Well, John, uh, do you have a Facebook page, a website, uh, some way we can contact you and see where you're playing next? Well, yes, you can. You can find me on ReverbNation.com, mm-hmm. and my itinerary is on there, and then it posts on Facebook as well. So any information that up, upcoming gigs are on Facebook on my on my personal page. I'm in the process of constructing my much needed, much far behind uh, website. So thank you so much for coming thank in you. and sharing I appreciate your great it. music. Thank you so much. I'm Chuck Wills, and with me in the studio is Emmy Award-winning journalist and entrepreneur, Teresa Goodrich. Welcome, Teresa. Hi, Chuck. How are you? I'm well. How are you today? I'm fantastic. Good. Well, really, your resume is a bit longer than that. You are a published author with two books on travel, Two Lane Gems, Volume 1 and 2, 
and you are the founder and publisher of the Local Tourist website, which is a travel and event guide for Chicago and recently everywhere else. That's correct. Fantastic. You currently live in Chicago, and I know we'd all like to know what brings you to Brown County, but before that, please tell us a little bit more about your background. Well, um, as you mentioned, I had gotten my degree in journalism, and then I moved up to Chicago shortly after 9-11, and I uh, just completely fell in love with the city. And at the time, it was uh, 2001, so there wasn't much out there to help me find out what was going on in my neck of the woods. And I knew that I wanted to write, and I wanted to write for myself. So instead of using my journalism degree in this traditional way, I decided to wait tables until I could figure out how to make that happen. And Shortly came up with the idea for a neighborhood guide to River North in downtown Chicago. A few years later, that expanded to cover all of downtown Chicago. And then in much later, I realized that I could start traveling the country. So I've now got a team of contributors that are covering everything that's happening in the Chicago area. And I'm able to follow my childhood dream, which is to travel the country and tell its stories. Nice. So that was really what gave birth to the local tourist. Yes, it was my love for this for the city of Chicago and my desire to to get deep into a destination and you know, no better place than your hometown. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the local tourists started about Chicago mm-hmm. and now it's about many other places, any place? Typically U.S. travel. That's my focus okay. is U.S. travel. I'm a little obsessed with road trips. Uh, sure. So that's that's where Tulane Gems came about. But um, I've always loved just talking with people and getting the, you know, the inside scoop and their stories and why a place is the way it is. So the the site itself now covers travel all over the country. Okay. And what's the web address of that site? Thelocaltourist.com. So tell me about Tulane Gems. I know it's quite a thing to actually publish a book. Mm -hmm. I I know that a lot of people read digitally, Mm -hmm. but also to have something in print. So tell us a little bit more about those books. Well, um, The first one came about because I had a booth at the San Diego Travel and Adventure Show, and it was my third year, I believe. Yes, it was the third year that I had a booth. So instead of uh, flying out there, I asked my husband, Jim, if he would mind driving. And he said, well, sure, how long do you think we'll need? And I was like, yes. So we figured it would take at least a month, and we drove out there two and a half weeks, spent a week there, and then uh, took a couple weeks getting back. And... I figured if I'm doing that, then I'm going to write a book about it. Nice. Uh, originally, it was just going to be uh, for the website. And I would actually started a separate website called Drive by Towns, which was all about small towns. That was going to be research for that. Realized that really could be part of the local tour. So that's how the first book came about. And um, that was a southwestern tour from Chicago to San Diego and back. And we drove nearly 6,500 miles. Oh. Um, that sounds like so much fun. It was incredible. The, the I mean, things you must have seen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lowest bar in the Western Hemisphere uh, with a bartender named Scheherazade. We stayed in a haunted hotel that had the uh, oldest working electric elevator west of the Mississippi. Amazing. Which is the reason we went there and we ended up driving around Death Valley just so we could go to that hotel. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So really, that's what brings you to Brown County this weekend. Yes. uh, After the second book was about a Northwestern tour of the U.S., and the third book is going to be, uh, I'm still figuring out the entire story behind it, but a lot of it will be, um, I'll be doing a lot of research about the Brown County area and about the woods of southern Indiana, and especially 
the uh, very active and lively artist and music community that's here. Yes, we have that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> will we be able to find this information on your website? Yes, you will. About your travels and exploits? Yes, you will. Now, I know that uh, I've seen a bit of a list of the places you've been. Looks like Hard Truth Hills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was fantastic. T.C. Steele. Mm -hmm. Yes. Good. Could have spent days there. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. Uh, You've been to the A. Martin Lodge in the State Mm -hmm. Park? Yes, we have. Great. Yeah, stayed in the lodge itself, so that was nice. Very nice. How's the hiking been so far? We haven't been able to do as much as we wanted to, just because we arrived, you know, uh, Saturday evening, and then we had to see you play. (laughs) (laughs) Thank (laughs) you for that. Chateau Thomas. (laughs) Right. Uh, And then uh, we had the one full day here, and we overstayed. I wouldn't say overstayed our welcome at TC Steel because we could have stayed there all afternoon, but we ended up having to run out the door so we could get to Hard Truth Hills, and then... That was because we we love, and I say we with my husband because it's a huge part of this. Um, he's my partner in every way. Sure. Um, but we just talking with Jeff McCabe and getting the story behind it and taking the tour. It's just fascinating to me how people will take their passions and make them reality. And yeah. so we didn't get we got to do a little bit of hiking this morning. Okay. Not much. All right. So that's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> that That's great. Well, hopefully if you don't get all of the hiking in that you wanted, you can always come back. Right. And Brown, that's the plan. We will be back. <laughs> Brown County's waiting for you. Yes. <laughs> Teresa, you are an Emmy Award winning journalist. You got an Emmy for being on the NBC Street team. Yes. Tell me about that, please. It was a group of contributors that NBC, they were they were new to uh, the concept of bringing in uh, these these contributors who already had a following through social media or through through their own websites. And there was an event called Looptopia. And it was a 24 hour overnight event in Chicago where they had arts happening all over the city. And so I was one of the select group of um, journalists that were invited to cover it. And so we did live blogging and live tweeting and call-in interviews with the station. And so it was just this whole multimedia experience covering this amazing multimedia experience. And the team won an Emmy for that. Well, congratulations for that. Thank (laughs) you. Now, I know you are a journalist from Chicago, but you're not really from Chicago, are you? I'm a Hoosier. (laughs) (laughs) I already knew that. Yes, you did. Because you and I went to high school together. Mm-hmm. Yes, we did. And not only did you teach me how to drive stick shift, for which my mom still thanks you. Uh, you also, you're we welcome. Also, <laughs> <laughs> and I thank you as well. Yeah. Um, but we also went to prom together. That so. we did. And we were in marching band together. Yes, we were. That's right. Yes, so that's how we met. It's kind of a little reunion yes. this weekend. Mm-hmm. So you also graduated from IU? Yes, I graduated from IUPUI. Okay. Yeah. With a degree in journalism. And with a degree in journalism. Fantastic. Well, welcome back to Indiana. Thank you. And I was actually Thrilled born in Bloomington. Well, see, the see? connections get exactly. even deeper. <laughs> <laughs> Teresa, thank you so much for coming into the studio today and for being in Brown County. Mm-hmm. And we look forward to seeing your report on the local tourist and finding out more about what we can do in Brown County. Great. Um, And I look forward to coming back and sharing everything that I've experienced with everyone. Thank you so much. Thanks. (laughs) This is a James Wilkin Riley called The Old Swimming Hole. Oh, the old swimming hole where the quicksilver's stealing deep 
Looked like a baby river that was lying half asleep And the talking of the water round the drift just below Sounded like the laugh of something we used to know Before we could remember anything but the eyes Of the angels looking out as we left paradise But the fleeting days of youth is beyond our control It's hard to part forever with the old swim and hold On the old sycamore Oh, it showed me a face In its warm, sunny tide That gazed back at me So fine and glorified Oh, it made me love myself As I leaped to caress My shadows smiling up at me With such tenderness But them days is passing gone And old time took its toll From the old man come back To the old swimming hole When the humdrum of school made so many runaways How great was the journey down the old dusty lane Where the tracks of our bare feet was all printed so plain But the lost joy is past Let your tears in sorrow roll Like the rain that used to dapple up The old swimming hole Oh, the old swimming hole When I last saw the place The scenes was all changed Like the change in my face The B&O bridge Now crosses the spot Where the old diving log lays sunk and forgot And I strayed down the banks where the trees used to be But never again where their shade shelter me And I wish in my sorrow I could strip to the soul Dive off in my grave like the old swimming hole we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County. 
91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. Support for the Brown County Hour comes from listeners like you and the support of the Brown County Inn, a family-friendly getaway destination located in Nashville, Indiana. Offering locally sourced food, drinks, and live entertainment with banquet space, indoor-outdoor pool, miniature golf, and more. Information and booking available at browncountyinn.com. They're the generous sponsors of our monthly Story Slam, taking place the second Thursday of every month in their Corn Crib Lounge. Storytellers join us to tell their true stories on a theme. Our next slam is October 10th, and our Halloween-appropriate theme is Nightmares. Please join us as a storyteller or a listener with more details available at browncountyhour.com. We begin segment two with Jim Eagleman's timely observation about fall. Frank Jones shares his version of Taley Poe. We have the latest edition of On the Road with Carrie Ray, Timelessness. And we'll close with John Whitcomb's tune, Days Gone By. Fall time means a lot of changes are about to occur in our natural world. You probably have noticed temperatures steadily getting cooler at the end of most days, and mornings are cooler at sunrise. Temperatures during the latter part of these September days still remain hot, making us think it's still the peak of summer. And the gradual change is sometimes difficult for us humans to determine. But for many birds and animals, they have already taken notice. And a single response to this may be a simple feeding earlier or later to avoid the heat. The amount of daylight, longer days with more light, and the intensity, meaning that Earth's rays are more direct, both cause birds and animals to eat, loaf, and relax through the summer. But as daylight shortens, all of that activity changes, and it can be due to their food sources changing, at least it was for our squirrels. I say our squirrels, but they aren't mine. You may have noticed hickory and acorns maturing, with many nuts falling already in a premature ripening, and others hanging on until they are larger and fully formed. Squirrels and other rodents have helped themselves to this food source, no matter if they are ripe or not. The pignut hickory in our backyard dropped a huge amount of unripened nuts already. The roof of our porch bombarded daily and through the night for several weeks. Normally the nuts hang on longer, and when they fall, the dried hull breaks away on impact to reveal the tan pointed hickory nut. But this year I could not find a single fully ripened nut with either green or tan hull under this tree, like I did for several years when it was loaded and hanging from the branch tips. So the nut crop, and you've heard me call this collective crop of nuts the mast, can change from year to year. It has to do with the flowering of the tree for the most part in spring, and we can only assume conditions, at least for this hickory, weren't the best. Squirrels in this hickory tree were busy, and the many nuts that fell were already chewed free from the holes. So why do squirrels bother eating only a small bit of the nut? It was soft and almost wet. When if they simply waited, the nuts may have ripened further. I suspect it was because the food was there. Squirrels are opportunists and take advantage of any food when they can, and even though the nut meat wasn't fully ripe, they will not pass it up. Other trees will produce typically ripened nuts, 
and they will exploit them in our woods as well. But because there are many squirrels, and food, at least as far as they know, is limited, they feed as much as they can for as long as they can. It's what happens in the squirrel world. Natural fruits are also ripening now and can be a sure food supply for migrating birds, many of which have already departed our Brown County Hills. Sumac dogwood berries, spicebush, arrowwood, the viburnums, wild grape, persimmon, crab apples, and the haws have all been closely examined by plant nutritionists and found to be high in lipids or fats. This high fatty diet will help propel birds on their long distance flights very soon. So watch for birds to stop off at your yard if you have these plants in fruit. Contrast the fall fruits, high in lipids, to the fruits of summer, like blue, black, and raspberries, strawberries. They are all high in sugars when birds are more sedentary, like incubating eggs. Territories are established and defended, but short flights are common, so a diet in sugars works well. But like a long-distance runner or a long-migrating bird about to take off, supplied with fats is the ticket and works well. Many questions now I see on social media about when to take down hummingbird feeders. I seem to be asked this question a lot, and I merely reply that you can stop supplying the fluid and filling the feeders when you don't see the birds anymore. I don't mean to be flippant, but helpful, in that the hummers depart when conditions for them are right. Now they are still feeding and fattening up for this long journey, but they do not in any way become dependent on food offered by us, as I hear often this concern. So no worries. And like me, you probably are still seeing them fight for position, drive off competing hummers, and whip back and forth like they have all summer. Aware of these subtle changes becomes a bit easier the more attuned we are to the natural world. And awareness, I have come to find, means more appreciation. Then we tend to take care of and become responsible stewards. It's a regular event, these changes of fall, and one we always look forward to, like always in these glorious hills of brown. Thanks for listening. This is Jim Eagleman for another segment of Nature Ramblings. Next time, more about hummingbirds. Hi, everybody. This is Frank Jones. Today, I'll be reading the story of Taylor Poe, a true Brown County legend. It was originally told by Grover Brown, who served as an educator in Brown County for some 51 years. It was originally told to him by John Cox of Morgantown. And it's a story of an old loner who lives deep in the woods of Tennessee who experiences a supernatural event by a creature called Talipo. Starts like this. A long time ago, way down in the deep woods of Tennessee, a man lived all by himself. This man's house had just one room, and that was his parlor, living room, bedroom, dining room, and kitchen, too. In one end of this log cabin was a big open fireplace where the man cooked and ate his meals. One night, he was sitting before the fire, half asleep, when the most curious of animals crept in through the half-open door. And it had a great long tail. 
Awakening, the man reached over for his hatchet and whacked the varmint's tail right off first lick. That varmint ran out into the night screaming. And the man, kind of fool-like, cooked and ate the tail. He lived by himself and was hurting for food. He went to bed, but he had not been asleep very long until he was awakened. And he heard something right outside the cabin wall. It sounded as if it was trying to get in. He listened. He heard it scratch, scratch, and scratch again. Then he heard it wail. Taily pole, All I want's me taily pole. Now this man had three dogs. One dog was named Inno. The other dog was named Uno. And the third dog was named Company Cocalico. Quite a long name. This man called his dogs. He said they came billing out from under the, the house and chased the varmint way down into the woods. Now the man went back to sleep. But not about midnight, he was awakened again. He listened. He heard something outside the cabin wall. Same as before, scratching like it was trying to get in. He heard it scratch, scratch, scratch again, and he heard it say, Taily-poe, Taily-poe, all I want's my Taily-poe. Again, this man called his dogs. This time, they came rushing around the corner of the house, and they caught up with this varmint, and they tore down the fence trying to kill it. And this time, they chased it way down into the woods, down past the woods and into the big swamp. Now, this took quite a while, and the man just went back to sleep. Away long after midnight, he was awakened again. He listened, and off in the distance, he could hear something saying, Taily po, you know I know all I want's me taily po. Again, this man called his dogs because he was frightened. But this time they failed to come. That varmint had either killed or lost them down in the big swamp. The man went back to sleep. The next time he woke up, it was almost time for the break of day. He thought he heard something in the room and he listened. Right down by the foot of his bed, he heard something scratching and scratching. He peered out from under the covers, and pretty soon he saw two sharp pointed ears coming slowly up over the foot of the bed. Then he saw two fiery red eyes, and this varmint crawled up over the foot of the bed. He could feel the sharp claws through the bedclothes. It crept right upon his chest. He could feel its hot breath in his face. It looked at him right dead in the eye and said, Taily po, Taily po, you know, I know all I want's me Taily po. This man was frightened, just as you or I would be. He was scared so badly, he could not open his mouth for a long time. And then he just yelled, I haven't got your Taily po. And then the critter said, yes, you has. And it scratched him all over to pieces.
And some folks say it got its taily po. Now there's nothing left of this old cabin way down in the big woods of Tennessee except for an old stone chimney. But when the moon shines brightly and the wind blows down the valley, you can hear something say, Taily po! And then die away. This is Carrie Ray, here with another installment of Forest Song. A while back, I did an episode inspired by an early morning trip to a venerable old covered bridge in my hometown. Initially, when I imagined it and began working on it, I thought it was to be about writing, songs specifically, with staying power. As is the case at times, the piece morphed into something else as I began to spend some time with it. I noticed this from time to time with songs as well. It's like the creative process has the muse begin to dictate the trajectory of the work. Come to think of it, that might be a good topic for a future installment. Ah, but I digress. Although the bridge piece became about something related but different, I still found myself thinking about creations with staying power. Timeless melodies, lyrics, and imagery. A little online research taught me that the earliest assumed appearance of human-made music is implied by flute-type instruments made of bone that date back about 43,000 years. I would think it's safe to assume that vocalized melodies go back even further. When it comes to the oldest known written music, we have to jump about 39,000 years forward to find Harriman Hymn Number 6, the world's earliest melody. But the oldest composition to have survived in its entirety is the first century AD Greek piece known as the Sekelos Epitaph. The song was found engraved on an ancient marble column used to mark a woman's gravesite in Turkey. I am a tombstone, an image, reads the inscription. Sekelos placed me here as an everlasting sign of deathless remembrance. The column also includes musical notation as well as a short set of lyrics that read, While you live, shine. Have no grief at all. Life exists only for a short while, and time demands its toll. Now, I'd like to insert here the role melody, rhythm, and overall musical style can play in making a song seem of a time, which actually brings me to another trait of a great song, the ability to stand when interpreted into different styles. For this to work, the lyrics must have a timeless quality and the melody a classic one. This has been done frequently in popular music, bringing a song from one genre to another or bringing one forward in time. The Beatles are the most covered band in modern history, with over 2,700 cover recordings and counting. And where there's some debate on the most frequently covered song in history, the majority of folks who track this sort of thing have Yesterday at the top of their list. I've spent decades listening to songs, writing them, assessing them, noticing ones that seem striking, ones that stick with me and others. Granted, there are many components that contribute to the impact and longevity of a song, but I've come to believe that there's one factor that trumps them all, and that is to address the universal components of the human condition. That means tapping into the experiences and feelings we all share. And by we all, I mean for the entirety of conscious human existence. 
To do it well means first trusting and then exploiting our connection. Trust that we humans are more alike than we are different at the core, and that your deepest feelings, hopes, dreams, cares, and fears are shared at some level by us all. Then simply share and know that the act of revealing is bound to resonate with someone. And the closer you get to our common denominators, the more folks you'll reach. Let's test this theory with the songs I referenced earlier. We have one from a couple of thousand years ago and one from several decades ago. The Greek tune, oversimplified, is about the meaning of life, the acknowledgement of how fleeting it is, and the acceptance that it, as we know it, will end. The Beatles tune is about longing for a simpler, elusive past, perhaps youth itself. Can you relate? <laughs> yeah, me too. So the formula itself, as I've presented it, is pretty simple. But simple and easy are not the same thing, are they? Like any formula or computer program, the quality of what comes out relies on the quality of what's put in. Garbage in, garbage out. And the only way to get to those fundamentals of the human journey is to slow down enough to connect with your own unique version of it. Only then will you have the valuable raw data to plug in to that equation. So pay attention as you pay your dues, and you might just hit pay dirt. I'm Carrie Ray, wishing you Godspeed and hoping you'll join me next time on For a Song. If you have ideas, questions, or topics you would like to have covered on For a Song, please send them along. You can reach me via the contact page of my website, carryray.com. That's C-A-R-I-R-A-Y.com. Thanks for listening. Here's tune, another James Whitcomb Riley call The Days Gone By. Oh, the days gone by, days gone by. In the orchard, the pathway through the ride, the chirp of the robin and the whistle of the quail, as he piped across the meadow, sweet as any nightingale. When the bloom was on the clover and the blue was in the sky, my happy heart brimmed over in days gone by. Days gone by, when my naked feet were tripped by the honeysuckle tangles where the water lilies dipped. And the ripples of the river lift the moss along the brink Where the placid eye and lazy feathered cattle came to drink And the tilted snipe stood fearless in the truant's wayward cry And the splashing of the swimmer in days gone by gone by, days gone by, the music of the laughing limbs, the luster of the eye, the childish faith in fairies and Aladdin's magic ring, simple soul reposing, glad belief in everything, when life was like a story, holding neither sob or sigh, in the golden nails and glory of days, of days gone by, in
Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. In our final segment, we have an update from the Raptor Center with Laura Edmonds. Dave Seastrom has a few thoughts about supporting WFHB during the fun drive, and we'll close with John Whitcomb's tune, Raggedy Man. It's my pleasure to have Laura Edmonds in our studio this evening, and Laura has been here before. Um, The last time she was here, she brought a beautiful little kestrel. This time, she's here to talk about eagles and the kind of an expansion of the Raptor Center into Bedford. Laura, good to see you again. Hi, thank you for having me back. This is such a treat. Please tell us what's going on with the eagles. Well, God bless our eagles. They are the most beautiful things, uh, and we almost lost them. Uh, and it's a story, unfortunately, and we when we go around to schools these days doing programs, there's kids that don't know that the bald eagle was ever even uh, threatened much less the peregrine falcon. So it's become a part of our history, and that's a good thing that it's historic (laughs) because that means now that the uh, bald eagle has come back from the edge and their populations across the country are in good shape. But it took some doing, and one of the ways that, that they did it was they did this thing called double clutching. And there were some areas where the bald eagle wasn't affected that were in Alaska, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Maine. And to get wild eagles or wild eagle young to be able to release in states that were in trouble, like Indiana, what they would do is once the female would finish laying her clutch, which was usually three eggs, scientists would run out there with a really thick coat on (laughs) so he wouldn't get nailed and uh, grab the eggs and the eggs would go in an incubator. And if you take their eggs away within 10 days of her laying them, she'll just lay again. So from these wild birds, they were getting two to six young instead of two to three. I see. And so then they would uh, they would grow up some, and then they would stick them with some captive foster parents. And then after that, they were doled out to different states who had these things called hacking stations. And what those are is that they're about 30 feet high, and they have places in them where you can stick the food in, you can stick the water in, uh, keep a close eye on them with cameras. And then at some point, the birds will let you know when they're ready to go because they get real restless. And they open the doors remotely. And it's really interesting where that restlessness goes away very, very quickly when the door comes off. (laughs) And they go, wait a minute, if I step a little too far. And then there's a good round of, uh, you go, no, you go, no, you go. But there's a, immediately in front of a, a hack station like there was in Lake Monroe, there's a, a stocked pond for them to practice on. And there's food in the hack station for as long as they need be. If they keep coming back to feed there as they learn to hunt, they uh, do it. Well, now, down there in Lake Monroe, they had Lake Monroe to practice okay. in. So they, they had quite a, a good area. But there's also uh, was very little in the way of a, a population near to sort of take care of the young. That was 30 years ago. Now we do have the advantage that there is a population out there so that if we need to release a bird 
that missed its training from its parents, we can use a hack station now. And we were sort of forced to build one because we got into the, the 30th year after uh, these things were no longer used and it was in terrible shape. The one in, in Lake Monroe, it was basically splinters. And, and there was 300 trees in front of the approach. Believe it or not, I mean, you think about, we don't have enough trees, but there was trees everywhere. But uh, the thing uh, that we built was almost an exact replica because fortunately, by the grace of, of Creator, we got some help from Rex Waters, who was with the original hack situation 30 years ago. And so he, not only did we get the grace of his knowledge, but we got the grace of his mistakes. And, and he said, and we made some. So he was able to, to get in there and say, do this, not that, do this, not that. And it became a, a beautiful station down there. It's, it's actually in Buddha or, or booty, as they say. But um, it's a very nice. It's about 30 feet high, and it has, um, it's about uh, 30 by 50. So uh, they have plenty of room to move around. It also has cameras and all that, so we can keep an eye on them. And uh, we open the door when they get restless, and then they stay around and hunt for a little bit. Once they get a little higher up, they see the, the White River, which is only about a half a mile away from there. And there's a very nice population there of, of immature and mature birds. And, you know, eels are so great. If they see a youngster that's in trouble or they're not quite getting it, they'll go help them. It's, really? There's such a, a, a really... I don't know. I used to, altruistic is that is that the word I'm looking for? Yeah. So these are rescue eagles. That, yes, sir. And you were describing some of the conditions that are causing this to take place now. Uh, yeah. There's uh, the normal stuff that happens to birds of prey where they get hit by cars, or they might uh, break a limb while they're in the nest or while they're trying to learn to fly. And there's a this business of of hunting. There's two different ways to learn. There's somebody shows you, or you learn by yourself. And fortunately, bald eagles eat carrion in addition to hunting. So if they keep missing the fish, they'll, they'll survive on carrion. And if they're in a place where there's some wild eagles around, they'll help them out. Also, they spend a great deal of their first year chasing osprey and <laughs> stealing fish. But it's, it's, it's for a good cause. But anyway, so uh, another thing that happens is that West Nile virus comes around right at the time when the parents would be setting up situations where the younger eagles would be getting a, a chance to practice and, and make mistakes and, and make their mistakes. And it's right there in August and, and September. So you'll get these situations where you've got youngsters that just miss that learning opportunity and have no clue what to do. So the hack station comes in really handy in terms of being able to what we call a soft release. Uh, anybody, any of the other raptor centers in the state are more than welcome to use it when they have the same situation. Well, you mentioned that you're about to expand into Bedford. Tell us about that. Yes, it's uh, not going to be too much, uh, oh, I'd say probably a few months uh, before uh, it gets open, but we're setting up another raptor center down there in Bedford because it's there's a lot of raptors down there. It's it's mixed uh, habitat, and man, there's some beautiful land down there. There's there's farmland. There's areas where there's uh, quarries are down there, and um, it makes for a, a big mix of birds. There's a, a high a population of owls down there. It just made sense for us. And, and it's, it's also a big place. It's empty of rehabbers. There's you go for 50 or 60 miles in either direction and you don't hit anything again until Evansville. So it needs to be done. 
to have another place in there. Is there a way that we can help you? Is there, do you have a website, a Facebook page, uh, some way to contact you? Oh, we do. We have uh, our Facebook is Indiana Raptor Center. Our website is indianaraptorcenter.org. Well, Laura, before I let you go, would you please give us that owl call that you just did in the hall for me? You, you didn't tell me you would. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to. <laughs> you, you don't wanted, have to. You don't you have to. You wanted this to go forward, didn't you? <laughs> yes, I, I would be glad to do it. We will uh, do the most common bird in terms of raptors that are in Indiana, the barred owl, B-A-R-R-E-D, which is often confused with a barn owl. But their habitat is a stream that goes through a woods. And what is Brown County, right. but a stream go. And they have that sort of very lyric thing where they go, like that. And uh, they uh, they can get together. They do duets and triets or something, right. but Tri- they'll trios, get going. Trios. They get going. So they're beautiful animal. Laura, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing this information. Well, thank you. It's always such a treat to come here. Indeed. <laughs> Let me begin by telling you a story. One Saturday, not too long ago, an old man took his grandson fishing. They had a radio with them that was tuned to WFHB. First thing in the morning, they were digging worms while they were listening to Buddy Bill. And by the time they were sitting next to the pond, dipping their lines, Roots for Breakfast came on. As the morning wore on, they were listening to Old Train 45. When they were eating their lunch, they listened to Rural Roots, and later, they enjoyed listening to the dark end of the street. All the while, the fish were biting, and the radio kept playing one great program after another. The little boy asked his grandpa, how come he always keeps his radio tuned to WFHB? And his grandpa said, well, son, it's like this. The way I figure it, if there's nothing better than going fishing with you, and I'm going to have the best time of my life, I want to enjoy the best music and information I can hear while I'm doing it. After a bit, the old man picked up his cell phone and called 812-323-1200. The little boy listened while his grandpa promised to donate some money to the station. After he got off the phone, the boy asked, Grandpa? The radio signal comes over the airways for free, so why did you give the station your money when you didn't have to pay for it? The old man scratched his chin and thought about it for a while before he turned to the young man and said, In this life, everything of value has its price. Before we left, you and I made the sandwiches we ate for lunch so we wouldn't be hungry. We wouldn't be catching any fish if we didn't first dig up some worms. And you wouldn't be sitting here if I hadn't come by your house to pick you up. And the truck we were driving in wouldn't run if I didn't buy the gas for it. He looked the young man in the eyes and he said, We support community radio for the same reason. It costs money to pay the bills and keep the lights on in the station. And if we want to enjoy good music while we're fishing and sitting on the back porch enjoying our fried fish, we have to chip in our fair share. It's really as simple as that. If we don't do our part, they can't do theirs. And if that happened, we wouldn't have this fine station to listen to. And with that, the two of them picked up their stringer full of bluegills and headed home to listen to Beale Street Caravan and fry up a fine mash of fish. 
Friends, there are times when the world is coming down around our ears, and stories of chaos fill the media. If the constant harangue of propaganda, the drumbeat of the maniacal, and the slaughter of our senses gets to be too much, there is one place we can turn to truth and solace and sanity, and that's our very own volunteer-powered radio station, WFHB. We are certainly living in interesting times, and sometimes it seems there's no place to go. But if you're listening to my voice right now, you already know where to find the joy that comes from good music, interesting conversations, and informative news programming. If you agree, then the best way to make sure you will always find your personal oasis when you need it is to support the radio station you've come to appreciate and call in your pledge. The story I told at the beginning of this piece took place on a Saturday. There are six other days of the week, and each of them has equally great programs. If you are listening to the station during Fun Drive, you obviously love the music and news programs we and the many other volunteers produce. For us, it's an act of love. If you share that feeling, this is the time to dig deep and pledge some of your hard-earned dollars to keep the station you love vibrant and strong going into the future. We don't want WFHB just to survive. We want it to thrive. And to do that, we need your help. Twice a year, we come to you and ask for your support. Now is that time. Please consider joining the WFHB family and calling in your pledge. Thank you for your support. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. And this is The Raggedy Man by James Wickham Riley. Oh, the raggedy man, he works for Paul. He's the goodest man you ever saw. He comes to our house every day and waters the horses and feeds them hay. Raggedy man, he is so good He splits the kin and then he chops the wood Then he spades in our garden too Does most things that a boy can't do Clump clean up in our big tree And shake the apple down for me Another one too for Elizabeth Ann And another one too for the raggedy man Oh, ain't he awful kind The raggedy man He's a raggedy, 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 raggedy man He's a raggedy, 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 raggedy man He's a raggedy, 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 raggedy man Raggedy man, he knows most rhymes Tells them if I be good sometimes Knows about giants, griffins and elves Squiddy comb squeeze the swallows themselves Once when the raggedy man come late Pigs was a rootin' through the garden gate He tended like those pigs as bears And said, oh bear shooter, will shoot them dead oh, He's a pig bear shooter The raggedy man 
He's a raggedy, 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 raggedy man. He's a raggedy, 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 raggedy man. He's a raggedy, 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 raggedy man. Thanks for tuning in to episode 91 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville, and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. And be sure to look for us on iTunes and Stitcher. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe, now more than ever, the world is for everyone. This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Jim Lemon, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County home.